Well, first of all, thank you uh, for coming this afternoon. Uh, as far as I know, the design of these seminars is uh, a new reality in the Shepherds Conference. I think in the past there has been one grand session, um, and for reasons never explained uh, and perhaps not explicable, um, we were each asked to choose uh, a character from history, uh, the uh, consideration of which might be profitable for us in thinking about faithfulness in gospel ministry. And I chose Robert Murray McChain for two reasons. First of all, because when I was a late teenager, uh, I read the wonderful biography of him uh, written by his close friend Andrew Bonner. And so now for about 50-something years, uh, the impress of Robert Murray McChain has been uh, very much on my own life. And I guess now I have read almost all that Murray McChain left behind after his short life in ministry. But the reason I chose Robert Murray McChain is because I'm actually a member of and an elder in the congregation of which he was the first minister. And we are still in the same building. His, uh, his pulpit is no longer in use, but it's still in the building. Americans come to see Robert Murray McChain's pulpit <laughs> and to be photographed in it. And sometimes I sit against the wall because God did great things in the building. And uh, at least in whimsical moments, I whisper to the wall, could you just play me a recording of what it was like to be uh, in this building with uh, maybe 1,100 people there uh, singing unaccompanied psalms to the glory of God? And uh, I sometimes think that if that could happen, I would be in heaven on earth because his ministry uh, and the, the memory of it, uh, with which as a theological student, I had a very tenuous connection, has meant so very much to me. Uh, and of course, naturally, I would choose Robert McChain because he was also Scottish. But it would not be possible, I think, to do full justice to his ministry within the scope of an hour. When his uh, biography, The Memoirs of Robert Murray McChain by Andrew Bonner came out, uh, someone who knew him wrote to his sister Eliza, it is so short and so half has not been told. Happily, however, there is much material on Robert Murray McChain. Um, Various biographies have been written. Uh, the cheapest way to get access to him is through uh, the Banner of Truth's little uh, paperback book, The Memoirs of Robert McShane. There's also another paperback here of Selected Sermons, which I think includes a sermon on two on Second Corinthians uh, 5. And if you get into him in a big way, another three volumes of sermons. And there are more sermons available out there from various publishers. And, and this all the fruit of a ministry that ended when the man was 29, and during which he had various seasons when he was out of his pulpit with sickness. But I want to try and anchor uh, 
our reflections on Murray McChain in terms of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, on which he preached fairly regularly. Because uh, I think he did that partly because some of the fundamental principles of his own ministry grew out of his study of 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to try and recount the story of his life in terms of some of the categories that Paul gives to us there, reflecting on his own ministry. And so I'll, I'll kind of walk through his life in these terms. And first of all, by saying something about the way in which he became, to use Paul's language here, a new creation, a new creature in Jesus Christ. He was born in Edinburgh in Scotland on the 21st of May, 1813. He was born into an upper middle class home. And I think, to be honest, he he fairly consistently throughout his life uh, had a tremendous sympathy with the poor, but still remained a fairly upper class individual. His father was a prominent Edinburgh lawyer. And one of the benefits of that, uh, which I think you would be able to understand, was that he had the best education Scottish money could buy. He was educated in the high school of Edinburgh and then at Edinburgh University. He came from a family with keen intellects and considerable ability. He learned, for example, to write the Greek alphabet when he was four. And, uh, you know, what becomes difficult if you start doing it at 34 is presumably easier when you're doing it at four. But that simply bespeaks something of the style of classical education that he enjoyed. And in many ways, I think that helps to explain the, the literary character of his preaching. Not in the sense that his preaching sounds as though it was just written, but in the sense that he had a command of vocabulary that enabled his preaching to live. And at the same time, he was a young man who very early on clearly had a poetic soul. And like some of his other friends, particularly Horatius Bonner, he gave expression not just to uh, the spiritual dimension of his life, but to life in general by writing poetry. The background to his life, if you know anything about the history of the Scottish church at the beginning of the 19th century, the Scottish church was dominated by what we call moderatism. That is to say, a kind of middle of the road, post-enlightenment Christianity as living a decent life. I've I've often reflected on this thought that... uh, Christianity, default Christianity in the British Isles is essentially a form of slightly purified Roman Catholicism. You do your best, and if you do your best, God will be gracious to you. Uh, The old medieval idea uh, reflected in the the Latin dictum, uh, facere inse, you do what's in you. And you cooperate with the grace of God. And eventually, if you cooperate enough with the grace of God, God is pleased with you and you become justifiable. And so when 
when the gospel began to disappear in Scotland, especially in the wake of the Enlightenment, and there was a very particular Scottish form of the Enlightenment, this became characteristic default Christianity. And it lasted through my early days. I still very clear recollections of, uh, as a zealous young Christian, if you asked people, did they know they were going to heaven, their answer characteristically would be, I hope so, and I've done my best. And if anyone said they were sure of their salvation, that would be regarded as a form of arrogance, just as it was in late medieval theology, just as it was in in post-Tridentine theology. Some of you know uh, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine's famous statement that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance of salvation, not justification, but that you would have assurance of salvation when in its very nature the Roman system could provide no assurance of salvation except to those who had a special divine revelation that vouchsafed their salvation to them. And this was the milieu in which Robert Murray McChain was reared. This was the milieu of the family religion. One of the the most striking statements of this was made by Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers to Scotland is a bit like Abraham Kuyper to the Netherlands, and they had parallel experiences. Neither of them was converted until they had been ordained to the ministry of the gospel. And it was the impact of genuine Christian people in their congregations that made them realize the bankruptcy of of their own lives, the bankruptcy of their own theology. And before he was converted, Thomas Chalmers wrote this, After the satisfactory discharge of his parish duties, a minister may enjoy five days in the week of uninterrupted leisure for the prosecution of any science in which his taste may dispose him to engage. And that, of course, was was characteristic of the situation. The idea of expounding Scripture, the idea of teaching people the great doctrines of the gospel, the idea that you actually believed the answers to the questions in the catechism were no part of the thinking of most ministers and therefore of most peoples in Presbyterian congregations. But in these earlier years of the 19th century, God was beginning to do something new. And I think as you look through the history of evangelicalism, right back to the Reformation, one of the things that you begin to notice is that when God begins to do something new, he seems characteristically to create a kind of brotherhood of men through whom he does it. And it's fairly clear as you uh, read about Murray McChain, uh, some of the boys he was at school with, others among whom God was working in the early part of the 19th century, that he was already preparing the country for the awakening that would take place, not only under Murray McChain's ministry, but in some ways even more remarkably 
under the ministry of William Chalmers Burns. Robert was the youngest of five. One of the children, as was still true in the early 19th century, died in infancy. And everything one picks up about him in his earlier years is that he was a singularly attractive young man. Uh, He made friends easily. He was gifted. He sang well. Uh, He was easy to get on with. He was somebody who impressed people. But some of you know the hymn that he later wrote, which reflected on his early life, that begins with the words, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. That was true, basically, of his whole family circle, and it was certainly true of him. And despite that uh, outwardly respectable life, he later wrote, and this tells you something about his uh, classical education, he wrote as uh, a young convert in his uh, diary, having reread it, Dum Re Lego Scripsisi Pudet. And since some of you are students at the Master Seminary, I'll just leave that untranslated for you. <laughs> uh, you know what it means. He's, what, what he's saying is, when, when I read over what I've written, I am ashamed. Uh, the lack of spirituality, the, the respectable worldliness, the pleasure and the ease of making friends easily, uh, the, the delights in the quality of education that he received. So how was he, how was he brought to be ashamed of his past? Well, in God's mercy, his, his older brother David came to faith in Christ. And uh, David's life clearly left its impress on him. Uh, David himself was training to be a lawyer. Uh, He died as a young man. Uh, And and that combination of his witness to Jesus Christ and his early death left a a mark on Murray McChain. Uh, He he later uh, wrote in his diary, um, how oft, this is very beautiful really, how oft that I would turn on me with pity's tenderest look, and only half upbraiding bid me flee from the vain idols of my boyish heart. It presents a a really beautiful picture of this brother, doesn't it? Um, That uh, McShane could see in his his brother's look at him. a kind of sadness at what he was missing by not coming to Christ and what he was doing that might push him further away from Christ. And then in the, in the context of the, the, the grief and pain of the family, Murray McChain himself is brought to Christ. And indeed, it seems the whole family was brought to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And as a young student now at the University of Edinburgh, along with some of his friends, he engaged zealously in evangelistic work. And he found himself uh, engaged in a context that he scarcely had known existed. 
visiting the poorer parts of the city, um, conscious of the deprivation, uh, seeing, uh, seeing not only the absence of material provision, but the absence of the gospel and the absence of faith in Christ. And this marked him and his ministry in a very remarkable way for the rest of his life. He went to uh, study in the University of Edinburgh, uh, graduated with an arts degree, then immediately went on to the study of theology, uh, particularly under two professors at uh, Edinburgh University. The first, the great Thomas Chalmers, um, who uh, probably more than any uh, professor in the history of the church in Scotland, left a uh, an evangelical stamp on so many ministers of the gospel and missionaries of the cross. And also under a, a much lesser uh, known figure, uh, Dr. Welsh, who, who taught Murray McChain preaching. Um, and interestingly, it was only when Murray McChain began to preach that he looked back and he realized that I now in a position to take in what Dr. Welsh was trying to teach me. It's something of his ability shown in the fact he and some of his companions, uh, not content with the education they were getting, decided that they would form an exegetical society. And so they would uh, meet together on Saturday mornings. There were about a dozen of them. Uh, and they would, they would read and study uh, books of the Old Testament in Hebrew, books of the New Testament in Greek, in order to sharpen their ability to read the Word of God accurately, and to be able to expound it properly. And I think they are wonderful illustrations to me as somebody whose theological education was largely somewhere between being liberal and just being bad. <laughs> Tremendous illustrations of the benediction of having a solid theological education. I mean, it's often struck me that without that, and, and some of you men would empathize with me in this, without that, you spend the rest of your ministry trying to play catch-up. But the great thing about this education was that it was an education under, under men of God. I, I learned uh, biblical Hebrew from a man who I doubt believed that God had inspired any single word of the Hebrew Bible. Um, who I remember on one occasion came into the class and uh, it just attacked me for an hour. Um, so if you have had or are having a solid theological education, um, I found as a seminary professor, if anyone complained to me about their education, I would say, come into my room and let me tell you about mine. Um, but here is the thing. These were young men wise enough to realize that what happened in the classroom was only half of their education. They realized if... if if they were really going to be educated, there was a kind of parallel in theological education to Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your theology in fear and trembling because your professors have worked it into you. 
So Murray McChain is to me a great illustration of, of this principle that it doesn't matter how good your theological education has been. If you don't work at it yourself, then it will not really flow into your ministry in a living way. And he's also a great illustration to me, I think, of the seriousness of being a student of Scripture. And so this was the background of his early life, studies theology, and in this little society, he begins to make friends. Um, those of you who know anything about the story of the church in 19th century Scotland, um, it is amazing the men who were in this group. Andrew Bonner, Horatius Bonner, George Smeaton. Uh, this, was a, this was a group of brothers God was bringing together that in many ways would leave an impress on the church in Scotland that would last through decades. He became in 1835 an assistant minister in a small town in central Scotland, uh, the town called Larbert. Um, Larbert had a great evangelical tradition, and the man he was sent to assist was a man called John Bonner, who was uh, a part of this great Bonner uh, ministerial clan. And Bonner uh, was known for a couple of things. One was exceptionally long sermons, and the other was, despite that, he was a master trainer of young ministers. And Murray McChain had about a year with John Bonner, many opportunities to preach. Bonner was responsible for, for two places of worship. And so Murray McChain learned to preach the only way you really learn to preach. And that was by preaching. And he had the opportunity to preach virtually every Sunday. And uh, two things emerged out of that. One was, and this is very interesting, he, he began to think that Bonner's sermons were far too long for the people. Now, Bonner would preach for way over an hour. And Murray McChain decided um, that he would actually preach briefly. So characteristically, he would preach between 30 and 40 minutes. The other thing Murray McChain learned in that context, um, something that I think has almost disappeared from the modern church, was the importance of meeting people where they lived. And so he did a tremendous amount of pastoral visitation. And one of the things characteristically he did was that he would, he would visit in a particular neighborhood, and then he would gather the people in the neighborhood in the evening, and uh, he, would, he would bring to a group of perhaps eight or nine families a, a personal message from the Word of God. And uh, it, it was his own way, really, of taking what was expounded in the pulpit and, and bringing it down into the home situation to be able to discover for himself, was the Word of God really taking effect? Were the people actually understanding it? Um, the, the, the difference between the question we were asked yesterday uh, did my sermon go well? And the more important question, uh, is it really making an impact on, 
the people, bringing it down to their level. If I can interject a personal illustration here. I, I served in a church in Scotland uh, where we, we had a church magazine that came out monthly, rather a large magazine, and I, I opened it naively uh, one month and I saw there was a headline article, It Pays to Increase Your Word Power. Um, any of you remember the Reader's Digest? I don't know if it's still in existence. Reader's Digest used to have a column every month entitled, It Pays to Increase Your Word Power. And there'd be 10 words there, and you're supposed to, I think it was kind of multiple guess, you're supposed to guess what these words meant. And this was an article, the editor didn't tell me it was going to be there, by a lady in the congregation who listed all the words I had used the previous month in my sermons that she had to go and look up a dictionary in order to understand what they meant. And she was a relatively educated woman. Now, another woman I would have asked somebody to get the knife out of my back, but she was not that kind of woman. And it was a revelation to me of, if I can put it this way, how much better educated most of us are than most people in our congregation. And this was something that Murray McChain began to learn because he had this more intimate connection uh, with the people. And it really produced in him a resolve that he would seek to preach to the people in a way that they could understand. I don't think he knew it, but he was really uh, illustrating Spurgeon's great maxim that the Lord said, feed my sheep and not my giraffes. But McShane was already suffering breakdowns in health. And he had seasons even as a young uh, assistant minister, as a 22, 23-year-old, when he was not able to continue with his ministry. In Scotland in in the 1800s, you know, we sometimes look back in the United Kingdom to days when everybody went to church. And sociologists have, have had a neat way of demonstrating that was never true. Because they count up the number of churches, the number of people you'd get into these churches, the population, and they realize there's never been a time in British history when, quotes everybody went to church. But one of the things that began to take place in the wake of the evangelical awakening in the early 19th century was this tremendous need for more places for people to be able to hear the Word of God. And one of those places was in the West End of Dundee. Uh, those of you who know uh, the shape of Scotland, you know, you I can scarcely put where Edinburgh is on a blank Scottish map, but you will know that Edinburgh is on the east coast of Scotland. If you imagine yourself traveling another 60 miles north, uh, past St. Andrews, for those of you who know where St. Andrews is for obvious reasons, you come to the city of Dundee. And the presbytery uh, in Dundee had desired to build a new church and to start a new congregation. And so in St. Peter Street, in the west end of Dundee, they built a relatively small church, um, 
if you if you raised the roof here, uh, it would have been no bigger than this room, but with a with a gallery on three sides that seated eleven hundred people. Uh, this itself is almost mesmeric because I'm sure today it would struggle to seat seven hundred people, and that's because we are bigger. And because we are not immunized to each other's smell, um, uh, nobody who went to that, few people who went to that church would have had a toilet inside their house. Uh, half of them would have probably been undernourished. And so this is a building to, to crowd people into. 1,100 seats in a, in a parish. The whole country is divided up into these little parish areas. 1,100 seats for a parish with 4,000 people. There were six people on the shortlist candidates. One of them was uh, Robert McShane's best friend, Andrew Bonner. And Andrew Bonner actually was the person that Murray McShane thought should be called to the church. But for some reason or another, one of the questions that was put to the candidates was, do you read your sermons? And Murray McShane said, no, I don't read my sermons. And uh, they called him. And apart from a period of about six or seven months, uh, 1838-1839 period, he labored in St. Peter's Church in Dundee until his death. Dundee uh, is one of those cities in the United Kingdom that was made by the Industrial Revolution. And you can tell that from the population explosion. In 1800, there were 29,000 people there. Uh, When McShane was at the height of his ministry, there were 66,000 people. So in a course of, uh, of 40 years, uh, the, the population had increased by about 250%. The main industry was jute and, uh, and seagoing. There were about, I think, about 360 seagoing vessels registered uh, in the port of Dundee. And it, it had all the worst features that today we would associate with the two-thirds world. Um, the housing was poor, uh, sanitation was poor, and uh, medical conditions were poor, uh, disease was rife, and uh, children went out to work from, from about the age of six onwards. And the typical working day was 11 hours, and it was a six-day week. So a 60-hour week in bad conditions for low salaries was virtually the norm in the West End of Dundee. There was no compulsory education for about another 30 or 40 years. So McShane went to a congregation in a context, the the very antithesis of the one in which he had been raised. Uh, Impoverished housing, low salaries, poor sanitation, long working days, and no education, and life with a boring job. 
if you ever read the history of these men, one of the things you would notice that certainly in the United States would seem almost unbelievable these days, when the railways decided they were going to run on Sundays, they went, they went down to the railway station and began to preach against the desecration of the Sabbath. And you can sense that even, even from a social point of view, the notion that there would be an encroachment onto the seventh day, or more accurately, the first day of the week, was not, was not something that they, that they were concerned about merely because they were some kind of Sabbatarian legalists, but because they understood that a breach of humanity was about to take place. And that this day had been made by God as a gift to man. And powerful men were seeking to destroy it. And so this was the context in which Murray McChain began to minister. In the West End of Dundee, uh, uh, there were two typhus epidemics uh, during his time. uh, One of which would carry his own life away. And most of his first month he spent visiting the sick and the dying, which meant he was also conducting multiple funerals uh, every week. Um, It is an extraordinary story. He writes to Bonner on one occasion, uh, within his first few months of being there, did I tell you of the boy I was asked to see on Sabbath evening? Just when I got myself comfortably seated at home, I went, and I was speaking to him of the freeness and fullness of Jesus when he gasped a little and died. I'll comment on some details of his ministry later, but as far as his biography in general is concerned, in 1838 he had a fairly serious fall and an extended period of recuperation. In 1839, he was put on a very small commission with Andrew Bonner and uh, two other older ministers on a commission of inquiry set up by the church into the condition of the Jews in Europe. And they they traveled great adventure. They had through Europe, going to all the main cities, discovering what the condition of the Jews might be in each of these European cities, and eventually uh, leading to a visit to Palestine. There's a a wonderful uh, account of that written by Bonner and McChain of their visit to the Holy Land that's really well worth reading. Um, And there's a lovely moment in it where Andrew Bonner is sitting at Jacob's well where Jesus met the woman of Samaria. And Bonner leans over, and his New Testament falls out of his pocket to the bottom of the well. And the the guide who's with him, who I I don't think knew anything about Scripture, says, just exactly as the woman at the well said, the well is deep, (laughs) meaning that's your New Testament gone forever. Um, And in many ways, this, uh, this was an indication of the tremendous interest of Scottish evangelicalism in the condition of the Jews. Um, 
some of you will know this, this is a season in the story of evangelical theology when uh, millenarian questions arise, uh, and for a variety of reasons, great interest in the condition of the Jews, and a, a more profound sense that what Paul says in Romans 1 it was not limited to the first century, but the gospel is the power of God. Uh, yes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And it was certainly characteristic of uh, these men, uh, a number of whom, if this is any comfort to some of you, were actually premillennialists, early premillennialists, uh, praying much for the conversion of the Jews. It's a very moving thing. Uh, to discover in their ministries. Well, uh, the marvelous thing was that uh, one of Murray McChain's burdens when he left on this visit to the Holy Land was, who is going to fill my pulpit? Um, Because already it was clear God was beginning to work. And to, to the astonishment of everybody, including the man himself, Uh, The man he chose was a man called William Chalmers Burns. And William Chalmers Burns was 23 years old. And during the months that Murray McChain was away, a most remarkable awakening took place under the ministry of William Chalmers Burns. Um, When when you read the story as as an early 21st century Christian and try and put this in, in context, I mean, in most seminaries, the youngest student might be 23, might be 23. The average student is likely to be in his 30s. And here is this this extraordinary illustration of the way in which God, God takes, as it were, the infants in ministry and uses them for his glory. And Uh, McShane, uh, in many ways, had prepared for that. He he read accounts of awakening to the congregation. He called the congregation to prayer. Um, You know, it's not every church that holds 1,100 people that will have 800 people at the prayer meeting on Thursday. Um, And already, as you see the story of his life, you, you can make the the God-pleasing connections that uh, brought about a favoring of this particular congregation and this particular ministry. Fascinatingly, uh, so Burns is 23 years old. He is the substitute minister. So how do you like that? You know, you've seen some fruitfulness in your congregation. Uh, The congregation is pleased and sends you off on on sabbatical leave. Uh, You go and visit the sites of the Holy Land and other interesting things. And you've you've come back through Hamburg in Germany, and you get the first news you've had since you left that God has done something amazing in the congregation when you were away. (laughs) And then when you come back, you discover 
Now, you, you need to get this in perspective. McShane is a poetic soul brought up in the upper echelons of society with a fabulous education. And um, William Chalmers Burns is, is a minister's son, but his brothers thought he would be a farmer. And like everything about him tells you the man should have been a farmer. I mean, so much so that the family's worried about him spiritually. And one day he, he, he's, he's in Edinburgh, and one day he appears in Kosaith, where the family lived, about 40 miles away. He turns up at the door in the early evening, and his mother immediately thinks, what's, his, what's he done wrong now? And says, where have you come from? I came from Edinburgh. How'd you get here? I walked. So this is a guy who can walk 40 miles and then smile at his mother. <laughs> and she's, she's out of her wits, worried, why, somebody ought for this boy to have walked 40 miles to see me. So he, she, brings, she brings him in and, he, and says, well, wh what's wrong? And he says, what would you think about me going into the gospel ministry? So he is a man's man. Uh, he is a voice that can wake the dead. Somebody who said, somebody who'd heard both Spurgeon preach in the Metropolitan Tabernacle and William Chalmers Burns preach in Scotland said of the two, Burns had the stronger voice. And McShane didn't have a strong voice. He actually seems to have had a slightly sing-song voice. And now he's got a letter from one of the leading figures in the church saying to him, when you go back, it's, it's very enigmatic. When you go back, there may be some sensitive issues that you need to deal with very carefully. And the, the, the amazing thing is that McShane had written, I believe God may do something in my absence that he has not done in my presence. And he'd already laid all that at the feet of the Lord. And, and fascinatingly, when he came back, there were some people in the congregation who would have been quite happy if he hadn't come back. And they'd been able to keep William Chalmers Burns. And the, the discovery of that, you know, well, McShane was a saintly individual, but he, he, he hadn't experienced uh, final perfection yet. Um, you know, I, 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 you know I've, I've, often, I've often said, um, you know, you can't say this in your own congregation, but you can say it in other people's congregations. For heaven's sake, don't tell your minister's wife how wonderful the visiting minister was if you've never told the minister's wife how wonderful he is. And it's amazing how often it happens. Absolutely amazing. We had a wonderful illustration of this in, in the church I served in Columbia. We had R.C. Sproul one weekend. And uh, somebody walked out the church at the end and said to one of my colleagues at whatever door it was, it's about time we had some theology in this church. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but you know the really interesting thing? Uh, uh, McShane said, that broke his idolatry of St. Peter's. I, I'm kind of amazed at the maturity of that thought, actually. Because, 
you, you just need to be in a company of ministers to sense that there really is such a thing as an idolatry of your congregation if things are going well. And you just let it slip on occasion uh, just to discourage your other minister friends how much the Lord is, is blessing you. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, uh, I think I understand what he was speaking about because your love for your church, yeah, it's something that you work at and in some instances you've got to work quite hard at it. But it is actually a gift, isn't it? It's part of the pastoral gift that, yeah, you work at it, but you can't help loving these people. And you sometimes think, you know, if these people had given me so much hassle and knew how much I really cared about them, maybe they would tone it down a bit, but you do love them. But if you see fruitfulness from that love, then unnoticed, your love can actually turn into an idolatry. You love what the Lord is doing more than, and you love the fact that he's doing it under your ministry. And then you begin to love the fact that he's doing it under your ministry when he's not doing it under other people's ministry. And so this is a, there was a wonderful combination, I think, of two things that, that one, well, three things, the Lord had prepared Bonner. That was one thing. When Bonner came back, he welcomed what God had done and was grateful that he had done it through William Chalmers Burns. And yet at the same time, God was doing something in him uh, that uh, whatever element of idolatry he had felt in relationship to the wonderful fruitfulness of the ministry in St. Peter's had, had more or less had its neck broken. And he therefore would be free from that idolatry to serve the Lord Jesus Christ well. So essentially that was the story of his ministry. In 1842, 1843, in the middle of a typhus epidemic, uh, McShane, who, who was never robust, as I said earlier on, uh, was stricken down and... Uh, to the grief of the congregation and his friends, uh, died. So that's the story of a new creature, a new creation in Christ. I want to turn attention now to my second point. Um, we will finish in time. <laughs> and that is that he made it his aim to please Christ. And here I think he is a wonderful example to us. He had seen the Christian life first in his brother David. He had seen how David wanted to please Christ, and now he wanted to please Christ. And we see this in several dimensions of his ministry. One is his private devotions. Um, the hours, you know, the hours of the day are accidental, how we, how we number them Days have not come from the hand of God with numbered hours. Okay, we have, we have our own ways of dividing things. Uh, but by any stretch of the imagination, McShane was a disciplined early riser. And he spent the first two hours of the day in his private devotions. He sang a psalm 
in order to, f- to frame his spirit. Um, you know, uh, just, just by the by, because it's a hobby horse and I've got the opportunity to express a hobby horse um, because you've not all left yet. Um, you know, I've started saying to, to ministers now, if you use a screen, your first responsibility is to tell your congregation they all need to go and buy a hymn book. Because you, you, cannot, you cannot survive in this way on what's shown on the screen. Uh, you, you, need to, you need to learn to be able to frame your spirit in private worship by having something to sing or if you can't sing, at least to say, that, that stirs your spirit. And McShane, of course, he was an exclusive, although he, he did write hymns, he was an exclusive psalmodist in terms of public worship. And so his whole life was dominated by the rhythms of the psalms. He would study several chapters of Scripture each day. Some of you may even use the McShane Bible study method that gets you through the Bible uh, in a year and the New Testament, and I think the Psalms twice. Um, and so he was, he was very devoted to, to absorbing the whole biblical narrative. And one of the things he did that, I must say when I read it, was a great help to me. Whenever it was possible, he reserved the best, his best hour of the day for study and worship. Now that varies. For some people, it's sometime in the morning. For, for some people, it may be the last hour in the evening. Uh, McShane is not here to be cloned, as it were. But he, under, he got to understand himself well enough to understand the hours of the day at which he was most alert. And if he was most alert at that time, he should do what was most important at that time. And he gave himself much to pray. Uh, he, he made various lists. He had, he had basically uh, four circles of prayer. Uh, his relatives, his friends, his congregation, his wider ministry, and the world. He would divide these down into sections. For example, when he prays for the congregation, he's got 11 different categories that stimulate thought and prayer for particular individuals, the careless, the anxious, new converts, solid Christians, the dying. So he's a real model to us in disciplined private devotion. He's also, as I said, I think a model to us in pastoral visitation. Or if pastoral visitation has become almost impossible because nobody's in, or because everybody in your congregation goes to bed at 7.30 at night, there are applications of this simply in the ways in which we, we get ourselves into the lives of our congregation. And here, McChain was, was incredibly devoted to people that he met. Um, here, is, here is one of these stories that tells you, tells you actually something about the context in which he was ministering. Um, you know, some people say, you, you ministers, you don't, you don't know anything about real life. 
and they've really no idea what they're talking about. You know, they they don't they don't visit as many people who are dying as ministers do. They don't talk to as many drug addicts as ministers do. So here is uh, here is Murray McChain visiting a home just down the street from the church, Thomas Tyree. And he would he would fill into his little journal the people that he met. He lives in Step Row in the lowest land, that's the lowest landing of a tenement building, an apartment block. Ill, he's been ill of consumption for five years, and he takes opium. And McShane visits him on the 12th of December, 1836. They have, a, they have an argument about hell and annihilation. Uh, and and uh, McShane would, would just put in, I think usually in red ink, the passage that he had read. And he had spoken to him about uh, the parable of the lost sheep. He says he was attentive. Um, he has read the Bible, but he's read it so he can argue about it. And he just puts a little footnote. There were neighbors in the house. He visits him again a week from that day, December the 19th. This is so interesting. Uh, He has been asking often for me. You know, that that really tells you that, um, in a way, it's who you are, isn't it? Um, You know, I've sometimes, sometimes said, you know, if you're a Christian, you smell. And, and when you leave the room, you leave, you leave something behind. People know whether you smell sweetly or have a foul smell about you. And, you know, we know that ourselves. Um, at least we know it about others. So there was a savor of Christ about McShane. And he says, he's been asking for me. So McShane speaks to him about the lost coin. And he goes on, he is still attentive, and he consents to the whole truth. And this is McShane at his cautious best. He is, he is saying, as people sometimes do, yeah, yeah, I agree with that, but McShane is wondering how deep this is going down. And so he, he visits him again the next day. And now the passage is Proverbs chapter 1. Turn you at my reproof. He says he was sleepier than usual, and yet he corroborated all, as he said. He visits him again two days later, and he speaks to him about the Lord opening Lydia's heart. And he says he seemed more attentive now, more focused, and said that a great change had taken place. And he spoke of the the peace that he had begun to experience. And yet, says McShane, he's still speaking through opium, and yet he's, he is wonderfully sensible. That is, he's, he's awake. He visits him six days later, 28th December, and he speaks to him now about the substitutionary atonement. I explained the whole gospel to him, and now he says, I pressed it on him. He seemed, he seemed, to, give, he seemed to give almost, almost strangely intelligent answers to my questions. Who knows but that there may be some work of the Spirit here. He says his views of his own heart and of Christ are both changed. And he visits him three days later. And the entry begins like this. Found his cold remains wrapped up. And Margaret crying. 
died on Friday morning, the 30th of December, before light. No one saw him die. Thus ends this short but interesting history. There was certainly a wonderful change in the man. He took to his Bible, and he spoke with interest of his soul and of the Savior, and was glad of my visits, and squeezed my hand always with affection. But whether there was a work of grace, the day shall declare it. I mean, it's really, it, it, it's kind of breathtaking. This is the first months of a 23-year-old minister. And this is a society that is completely out of his natural orbit. But it's the society into which God has sent him. And that kind of personal evangelism, um, I think in some ways this must have been the, the, the unwritten key to McShane's influence in this congregation. That, that unlike perhaps what some of us experienced, he wasn't banging the pulpit and telling the people they needed to be witnesses out there. I suspect his people learned what it meant to be an evangelist for Christ because they saw it in his own life. And you get all kinds of little records of, of his own relations, his cousins, other people who are drawn to Christ by his personal evangelism. His public ministry was also interesting, at least it's interesting to me, so I'll tell you about it. The Lord's Day began at eight o'clock in the morning um, with a children's service. And fascinatingly, this was a great this was a great Reformation tradition. Calvin had a children's service. Uh, Knox had a children's service. Once the main service of the morning was over, Knox actually flipped the congregation. So the children would be there in the main service with their parents. And then he would he would flip it around. There would be a service for the children, but the parents had to stay. And part of the, me, if I were planting a church, that's what I would do. Because the genius of it was that not only were the children learning, but the parents were learning what the children were learning. And not only were the parents learning what the children were learning, but the parents were learning from the best teachers in the church how to teach their children. And since you had a four-mile walk home, it was something for you to talk to your kids about on the way home. And so there was this, this amazing commitment. I think one of the things I learned from, from McShane and his friends is that in some ways the test of the Christ-likeness of our ministry is how the children in the church regard us. And how concerned we are to bring the gospel to them. There was morning worship, and uh, there, most of the year there would be afternoon worship because it got dark at four o'clock in the afternoon or in the summer, uh, evening worship. And then in the evening there would be a Sunday school, an instruction school for the children. 
McShane preached in, in the old Scottish method, uh, which characteristically was textual preaching. Um, and it, I think it's worth throwing into the mix that the phenomenon of systematic Bible exposition is a very recent phenomenon in the story of the church. Um, there, are only, there are only occasions in the history of the church where this has been the characteristic practice. And for me, it's been my characteristic, if not my universal practice. Um, but I think we need to ask the question whether there is something we can learn from the past about the way we preach. Because at the end of the day, the really important thing is not what happened last week and what's going to happen next week, but what's going to happen this week. Um, And the big thing about what happens this week is not that it's the next passage to last week and the passage before next week. But do we bring people to Christ through this passage this week? And so characteristically, in the old Scottish style, there were, there were really two styles of preaching. One was textual preaching, and the other was systematic exposition. And Murray McChain conducted his ministry with both of these. The high point for uh, most of these Scottish churches was in the communion service. Um, and that when McShane went to Dundee, would have been expected to be twice a year. McShane doubled that to about four times a year. But something happened in those communion services that don't usually happen in our communion services, at least I take it, in the United States. And that was it became a whole season. It became a church conference. And so the people gave themselves in a more intense way to sit under the ministry of the Word. And the second thing that happened, um, and because this has almost universally disappeared, I regret, it, I regret it disappearing, was there was so much preaching to do that the local minister would invite often the guys he had been at seminary with to come and share with him in the ministry at the weekend. And that did something to these men. It meant they heard one another preach which most theological students haven't done since they were presumably with the likes of Steve Lawson listening to what it was supposed to be to preach. And because they did that, they were, enabled, they were able to encourage one another to handle the Scriptures better. They bonded together better. Now, I've often thought, you know, it's very, is it flattering? It's certainly very nice to be invited to be the speaker at a church conference. You know, I've often wanted to say to the elders in a church, you need to stop looking for, you know, the, the best name you can find and ask your minister, who are your close friends? We want to bring them in. And we want you to go to them because we want to see you grow and we want to see you encouraged by these brothers and we want to know what these other brothers are doing with whom you've been bonded since the days you were in seminary. And so this was a great season in, uh, often in McShane's life. 
I'd better deal with the third and four points with great rapidity. Thirdly, and this is already evident, McShane viewed no man from a worldly point of view. You can sense in the way in which he uh, thinks about people that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 dominates his understanding. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He comes home uh, one day and he writes in his journal, as I was walking through the fields, that thought came to me with almost overwhelming power that everyone to whom I speak must shortly be sent either to heaven or to hell. And it's easy to lose sight of that. Satan will want to mask that. The world will want to dilute it. People in the congregation may be uncomfortable with it. But it is true, isn't it? Everyone to whom you preach will shortly be sent either to heaven or to hell. And the thing that, that, that makes his ministry such a powerful example to us is that he kept that notion fresh in his mind. And he, he preached with a sense of uh, eternal realities. I, I, I was speaking to, uh, to Keith Getty at, at lunchtime today. He, he, he said a very interesting thing that he would know, but I didn't know, uh, about, about the percentage of older hymns that are about eternity or mention eternity and heaven and hell and the percentage of contemporary worship songs that do the same. In the former, these are dominant themes. In the latter, he says, they're almost non-existent. And that's an expression of what people want to sing. It's an expression of what people in the, the music business want them to sing. And so it's, it's health-giving for us to visit the life of somebody who, who, yes, of course he was conscious that he himself lived on the verge of eternity. And that certainly concentrates the mind. But this was coming to him out of his understanding of Scripture. And so uh, he is a man who has learned to think about people in terms of eternal realities. And then finally, he's a man who was controlled by or constrained by the love of Christ. In fact, one of the, one of the more recent biographies of uh, McShane is entitled Constrained by Love. He was, he was held in place by the love of Christ. Um, as I say, he, he was under great pressure. He wasn't well. He was he was offered a church in a parish that had only 300 people on twice the salary. And he wrote back a very gracious letter simply saying, how could he leave this for that? And his, his mother's concerned about him, and he writes, dear mama, you would say dear mom, <laughs> dear mama, you must make up you must make up your mind to let me be murdered among the lanes of Dundee instead of seeing me fattening on the green glebe of Skirling. Perhaps it would have been good for my frail body, 
But then I fear my soul would have turned sickly, and the most precious part would have withered. I would have felt myself a renegade, seeking my own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ. When he died, of course, one of the things that his friends discussed was, so So, what was his secret? One of his friends said his secret was watchfulness. Another, who I think was probably nearer the mark because it was a larger picture, said that the real secret was he was the most Jesus-like man I ever knew. And that certainly would be expressive of one of his his best-known sayings, which uh, is probably inscribed in many of your hearts. It's not great talents that God uses, so much as great likeness to Christ. Uh, As I say, he he, uh, died, among other things, from typhoid fever. And I've always found one of the most moving uh, stories about uh, McShane uh, that uh, he had actually received a letter that lay uh, unopened on his desk. He was too sick to read it. And uh, one of his friends opened it after he had died. And the letter uh, said this, I heard you preach last Sabbath evening. And it pleased God to bless that sermon to my soul. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking that struck me. I'm not sure they can teach that in seminary. I'm kind of, and I've been thinking about it again this week. I mean, it's not often that you sit down for the whole day and listen to it hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. And we've hour after hour after hour after hour. (laughs) And we're in the middle of hour after hour after hour. Um, But isn't one of the most fascinating studies in preaching the connection between the soul and the voice? The way it comes out. Um... I don't teach preaching and I'm not capable of teaching preaching, but when students have asked me, I've sometimes said, here's something for you to do. You go on a journey, put on your, whatever it is you listen to, put on a sermon by a man you know is completely orthodox, but almost universally boring. (laughs) And as you listen, like a nanosecond later after every sentence, transpose that sermon to the voice of a preacher you admire and from whom you benefit a great deal. And you're likely to be amazed at the difference. And it's somehow or another connected to this statement. It wasn't wasn't just what you said. It was what I think of as the connectedness between the soul and the voice the manner in which you said it, uh, the, the atmosphere, the integrity between what was being said and the spirit of the individual who was saying it. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking that struck me. I saw in you 
a beauty in holiness that I never saw before. And I think that that probably was the real secret of the fruitfulness of his ministry.